Sorry. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Well, it's time now to revisit the apocalypse. As used in common parlance, that is our common speech, whenever the word apocalyptic is used, it seems to be used to imply or something catastrophic. Impending doom. But it's fascinating to realize that the word has been used with ever-increasing frequency since the 1970s to describe the growing perception of the dire nature of world events, and it's been applied broadly to issues of economics, climate, health, lawlessness, and just about anything that we think is unpleasant. But what does the word apocalypse really mean? From where does the word come? And why is the book of Revelation called the Apocalypse? Did you know it was called that? The book of Revelation is called the Apocalypse. And has our pattern of common usage actually observed the true meaning and implications of the word Apocalypse? In factuality, the word apocalypse is translated revelation in the final book of the Christian Bible. Therefore, it's actually the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, meaning the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's pretty significant, I think, because mere information, beyond mere information, because the revelation calls for profound transformation in view of the eternal nature of that which is revealed. So a true translation of apocalypse might therefore be the unveiling of Messiah, Yeshua, Hamashiach, the unveiling. So today on Viewpoint, we want to talk about the unveiling. What does that mean? And we may connect it with some something very fascinating. Are you familiar with the... Bible's description of an event to occur on the third day. You see, the third day of what? Well, there are several instances in the Bible referring to a third day. But ultimately, they all seem to point to the same time. What time is that? Does it have anything to do with the word apocalypse? Does it have anything to do with the the word revelation? Believe it or not, the word apocalyptic occurs 18 times in the New Testament uh, and uh, is the fulfillment of the Torah and the Tanakh, that is, in the Old Testament. And it comes from the Greek noun apocalypsis, which also appears 26 times in the verb form apocalypto. Now, I know that's all very fascinating, isn't it? We're uh, jumping up and down and shouting over those uh, revelations of Greek derivation, derivation, but not really. I mean, it does help us to see where the word actually comes from. And in reality, where it comes from is the meaning of a preposition, apos, and a verb, kalupto, and together, They mean to uncover, to unveil, or to reveal. 
So the book of Revelation is the final unveiling of what we might call the mystery of the ages. But that mystery is only going to be solved by those who now, shall we say, see the truth of what is unveiled and receive it as true to define the destiny of their lives. And so we can have all the information concerning the apocalypse, the meaning of the word apocalypse, uh, all of those things, the book of Revelation, we can have all the understanding and all kinds of factual understanding, but it does no good unless that unveiling actually takes place in our own minds and hearts. So that's what we're going to be focused on here today on Viewpoint. I'm glad that you've joined us. This conversation is always with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. Today is no exception. So what was the distilled message, the message of the unveiled Messiah? And then what is the distilled message the long-awaited Yeshua HaMashiach from the unveiling or revelation. We need to know those things. What is it that Jesus intended? Why has so much been veiled? And what is it going to take to reach the unveiling? Have we already reached it? Some people might say, well, that's already reached. I know about Jesus. I know that he was the son of God, that he was born of a virgin, that he died, that he rose again for our sins. See, I know him. Therefore, they believe I have the revelation. But really, is that same person ready for the unveiling, the real unveiling that the book of Revelation talks about? Is that same individual ready for what is called the third day? You say, the third day, what is that all about? Didn't Jesus rise on the third day? Yes, he did. And he's going to come again on the third day. That's what the Bible tells us. Maybe you haven't heard about that, the coming third day drama. Have you heard about it? Well, we're going to talk about it here today on Viewpoint, because in the book of Hosea, we are told after two days, God will revive us. And in the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. What in the world did that mean? And was this prophecy ever fulfilled? And if so, how was it filled, fulfilled? When was it fulfilled? And is the fulfillment complete? So today, we need to prepare for the third day unveiling. That's a whale of a story. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it takes us back to the book of Jonah, where there was an even adultist generation seeking after a sign. And Jesus said there would be no sign given to that generation, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what was it about that prophet Jonah? Remember? God sent him against his against Jonah's own will to preach salvation and repentance to an ungodly people called Nineveh. Nineveh hated Israel. They were nasty people. Jonah didn't want to go there. But God said, no, I want you to go there. When Jonah didn't want to go there and tried to run away, God had him swallowed up by a whale. And Jonah spent three days 
and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Here's what Jesus said. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But is that the end of the message of the third day? Was it just a story about a whale? No. It's a much, much bigger story, and it remains to be, dare we say, unveiled for our time. And so I welcome you back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and today we're going to take a look at that, and I hope you'll stay tuned because this is going to be gradually unveiled before you here today on the program. Stay tuned, my friend. You're listening to Viewpoint, and as we always say, Viewpoint determines destiny. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. The unveiling on the third day. That's what we're going to talk about here today on Viewpoint, and I'm glad that you've joined us. In the book of Exodus, chapter 19, we find these words, be ready against the third day, or be ready for the third day. What was the third day about? In the book of Exodus? You've got to be kidding me. Do we really have to go back to the book of Exodus to find out what the book of Revelation is actually about? The apocalypse? The unveiling? Indeed, we do. We do, because you just cannot take one part of the Bible by itself. You will never get the fullness of the revelation. You will never get the fullness of the unveiling. You can read the New Testament till you're blue in the face and you'll never get the full unveiling. You just won't because the New Testament is built on the Old Testament and is a continuation of it. And a third of the verses in the New Testament were recitations of the Old Testament, believe it or not. Now, we know Messiah is coming. At least many of us are convinced that that is the case. The prophet Malachi, there in the Old Testament, penned before the 400 years of silence preceding the birth of Yeshua, that is Jesus. He said, the Lord whom you seek is going to suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, or at least say you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide or endure the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears, for he's like a refiner's fire, and he shall purify the son's of Levi. Well, has that messenger of the covenant already come? Was he identified as such? Well, I think that messenger of the covenant ultimately was John the Baptist. He came to prepare the way of the Lord for the first coming of Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. 
But the scripture tells us that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that is the second coming of Jesus, Yeshua, there's going to be a similar kind of messenger calling the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. We read that in Malachi again, chapter 3 and chapter 4. So we go back, we're going to go back of necessity to the book of Exodus chapter 19 in order to try to comprehend how we get from there, that is Mount Sinai, to the second coming, which is at the point of the great revelation or unveiling of the story of all history. So, here we go. Are you ready for that? Anchor your seatbelt, my friend. We're going to jump in our chariot, and we're going to go head head back to the book of Exodus as the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. Remember, that's the greatest story in the history of Israel. There is no story from their viewpoint that compares with coming out of Egypt. Over 400 times from Genesis to Revelation, the words out of Egypt or similar words can be found. It's the most repeated theme in the Bible. You can't understand the whole Bible. You can't understand the theology of the Bible. You can't understand the teaching of Jesus and the prophets and the apostles in its fullness and completeness without first understanding what it meant to come out of Egypt. Most people think they do know what it means to come out of Egypt. They means they think it means, well, uh, confess Jesus Christ is your Savior and you should be saved from your sin and be delivered from all bondage. Well, if that be true, by analogy then, when God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand through the prophetic work of Moses and he led them across the Red Sea, that should have been the end of the story, right? They were delivered. They were saved. But they weren't. You say, really? They weren't saved? No, they weren't saved. How do we know they weren't saved? Because God himself said that out of the 600,000 men, plus women and children, they came out of Egypt of the 600,000 men of accountable age, 20 and older. Only two of them were going to be allowed into the promised land. And here's the reason why. Because of all the others, while God took them out of the house of bondage, they never actually left the spirit of Egypt. They weren't delivered at all. Now, they could have been delivered just like Joshua and Caleb, who had another spirit and were allowed into the promised land. But they weren't. God said they were governed by the spirit of Egypt, even though they supposedly had been delivered. How many people do you know today who claim to be followers of Christ, who claim to be born again, who claim to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and saves them from their sin, yet walk like an Egyptian. In other words, they walk like the world. You know anybody like that? 
That's what happened to Israel. God delivered them from the house of bondage in practicality, but in spirit, they were not delivered because they refused to walk in the spirit of the Lord. They had no revelation or unveiling to them of the meaning of what God really did for them. Only Joshua and Caleb did. And they were allowed into the promised land together with those who survived the wilderness experience for 40 years under who came, when were under 20 years of age when they came out of Egypt. Now, if you want to read more and understand more deeply what it means to come out of Egypt, because it is a profound message for our time, I urge you to get a copy of my book, Out of Egypt. My wife thinks it's the most powerful book that I've ever written. Uh, it is certainly a revelation for our time to help us to be prepared for the apocalypse, for the unveiling, the ultimate unveiling, because if we are like the children of Israel that came out of Egypt but still walk in the ways of Egypt, we have to question whether we're on the way to the promised land. I want you to process that in your mind and heart. This is, this is extremely important on the near edge of the second coming. Because Jesus himself said, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to inherit the kingdom of God, only those who do the will of my Father. In other words, not everybody who says the words are going to get in. Only those whose lives comport with what they say. You say, well, none of us is perfect. That's true. None of us is perfect. Yet Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect, even your, as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, we're to move on, as the Apostle Paul said, unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of all of those simple things uh, concerning salvation. We're to live according to the Spirit of God. If we do not, we will not understand the unveiling. The apocalypse will be remain a mystery until it's too late. And that causes us to go back to Mount Sinai. You say, wow, you're saying a lot of things that uh, are, are hard to receive. Uh, yes, that may very well be true. Jesus said to a lot of things that were hard to receive, too. So did the Apostle Paul, so did the Apostle Peter, so did the Apostle John, so did the Apostle James, and so on. They all said things that were very hard to accept. And in many respects, while most professing Christians accept the majority of what they said, they reject many other aspects, even of what Jesus said. Which means... We're riding a very tight rope between the spirit of Egypt and the spirit of the promised land. And the third day is what leads us to the promised land. So the question is, are we ready for the third day? And when the book of Ezekiel, excuse me, Exodus says, be ready against the third day. Those were God's words. He was telling Israel to get 
ready for a particular day. We're going to find out what that day was like. Are you ready? Are you sure you want to find out what that day was like? We need to. And that was about 3,500 years ago. And there's prophetic symbolism of God's confirmation of that covenant at Sinai that remains, shall we say, grippingly instructive to us at this historic moment of history, right now, as prophecy and history are converging to ultimate fulfillment for the ultimate unveiling, the apocalypse. Okay, so we're going to go back now to Exodus chapter 19, where God says, in portraying this pattern of eternal substance for both Jew and Gentile, he says, be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people. Now, he was talking about Sinai. But by implication, he was also talking about the final appearing of Jesus Christ in the second coming. So here's what may be the most solemn and sobering warning for Israel's first messianic moment. The actual manifestation of God on this planet before a people that they pledged to be God's betrothed. And he said, be ready. Be ready for the third day. So obviously the question is, what were the people to do to get ready? And why? Well, here's what God commanded them. He said, be sanctified. He, he, he gave them three things. One, be sanctified, which means to be set apart exclusively as a bride for the bridegroom. Next, he said, be purified. Wash your clothes as a symbol of being clothed in a white gown before they are betrothed. In other words, isn't that why, ladies, the brides wear a white gown? They're supposed to be coming pure and holy as virgins to their husband. And that's why they wear the white gown. It's a symbol of being clothed in purity. God uses exactly the same language. Maybe that's even where we get it from. Then, additionally, he says, be exclusively committed to have no sexual relations for three days as a sign of being spiritually exclusive in betrothal commitment to God without any fleshly compromise. Now, can you see then how our engagement in illicit sex, fornication, adultery, premarital sex, uh, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, all these distortions and perversions of purity are actually almost like shaking our fist in the face of God and his son Jesus Christ, who to whom we claim we're betrothed in purity and in holiness. So God had this problem with Israel. And what he did with Israel at Mount Sinai speaks to us today. So it was a drama. You can call it the third day drama. It was unprecedented in human history. And 
it was like a prophetic declaration, both terrifying and for those truly ready on the third day, triumphant. So, there were three distinct manifestations or ways of God's unprecedented presence to humanity that took place on the third day. There at Sinai. And these signs or messianic manifestations were followed by the Lord delivering his word, that is, his covenantal will, defining his fundamental ways to which he expected his bride to follow. Now remember, we're called the bride of Christ, right? But the Apostle Paul says that Christ is not coming back for a bride with spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. So this applies to us today, not just to them at Sinai, but to us today on the near to the second coming. So are you ready for the revelation, the unveiling? Here we come right after this. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at saveus.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived, Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. The messianic mystery and unveiling is about to be revealed here in the next 25 minutes on Viewpoint. It has to do with the third day. It has to do with the true meaning of the word apocalypse, which means unveiling. It has to do with what is to be unveiled and what you and I are to do, how we are to be responsible. We're to respond for that moment in time. The final moment of world history. Now, we talked about this third day dilemma with regard to, uh, you know, the whale of the story with regard to Jonah. And Jesus had said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so must the Son of Man, that is, Jesus, be three days and three nights in the earth. And he was. But only if you find that he was crucified on Wednesday, not on Friday. The mere fact that we talk about Good Friday is a denial of what Jesus prophesied. It's a denial, it's a confusion of the actual prophetic unveiling that God talked about and birthed in his word from Sinai to the second coming. Let me quickly reveal it to you. Jesus did not get crucified on Friday. He was crucified on Wednesday. 
He was crucified on Wednesday morning. And Wednesday morning was the day preceding the Passover. Not the Sabbath, but a Sabbath day called the Passover. And so, Jesus died about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He cried out to his father, My father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he gave up the ghost and he died. When Pontius Pilate had been advised of his early death, it shocked everybody because his legs had not been broken. They took him down from the cross because the scripture had written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, and no one was to be hung after sundown. So he had to be taken down before sundown. But there was something else that was to take place at sundown on Wednesday night. You know what it was? The beginning of Passover. And Passover was called a Sabbath day. Not the Sabbath, a Sabbath day. So his body had to be taken down. It was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And put a guard was put on it. And Jesus was buried. He was there from Wednesday night to Thursday night. That's one day. From Thursday night to Friday night, that's two days. From Friday night to Saturday night, that's three days. When did Saturday night conclude? It concluded at 6 p.m. or sundown, because the Jewish day ended at sundown or began at sundown. Therefore, Jesus was in the grave three total days, starting Wednesday evening. Then early on the morning on the next day, which was the first day of the week, He was seen. He had risen sometime between sundown on Saturday night and sunup on Sunday morning. He had been in the grave three full days. So why is it that the theologians have to jump all over and uh, perform all kinds of theological and mental gymnastics to try to justify that Jesus was crucified on Friday. Because they don't understand the Jewish calendar and refuse to fight against tradition that is not based upon truth. The only truth is that Jesus was crucified on Wednesday, rose after sundown on On Saturday, he was in the grave three full days and three full nights. Just as he had said, Jonah was in the belly of the whale three full days and three full nights. God is a mathematician. He created math, and he didn't mistake what he said. 
All right, that having been said, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. This was the unveiling of the messianic mystery, but it's not complete yet. That was a preliminary foretaste, a prophetic preview, you might say, of the final unveiling or apocalypse as the sign of Jonah was fulfilled in the life of Yeshua or Jesus. So, the third day is going to define the ultimate revealing or apocalypse or unveiling. So now it's time for us to revisit the apocalypse. We've talked about the meaning of it. It means unveiling. It means revelation. That's where the book of Revelation comes from. It means the unveiling, the apocalypse. So what was Jesus' message of the unveiled Messiah? The long-awaited, as the Jews would say, Yeshua HaMashiach from the unveiling or revelation. The purpose was to show to his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Right there in Revelation 1. The purpose was to declare that the time is at hand for the unveiling and its eternal consequences. Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, the first begotten of the dead through resurrection, is the prince of the kings of the earth, as we're told by Isaiah, right there in Revelation chapter 1. Yeshua HaMashiach is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty, Revelation 1.8. Yeshua is that he that liveth and was dead and is alive forevermore and has the keys of hell and death, Revelation 1.18, and so on. The book of Revelation then begins to clearly lay out what Jesus, Yeshua, was to fulfill in this unveiling or apocalypse. It's all laid out in the book of Revelation. And if you want to see the distillation of that, get a copy of my book, Messiah. Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages. $22 will put it in your hands. It's on our website, Save Us Dog. There's a whole chapter at the end of the book called The Third Day. You read that chapter and your heart is going to be gripped. It's going to open up an understanding of the scriptures and also an understanding of the times that we are in and what you and I need to do about it. It's not just information. It's for transformation. And we're going to see exactly what that looks like. It's amazing. It's utterly amazing. So what did God have the people to do at Sinai? There were three things, remember. One They had to be sanctified or set apart exclusively as a bride for the bridegroom. Now, let's let's talk about the implications of that. Number one, they couldn't fornicate with anybody else. They couldn't adulterize with anybody else. They couldn't engage in idolatry. They couldn't engage in any other god. They could have no other gods before them. They could not make unto them any graven image. They could not take the word of the Lord or the name of the Lord in vain. Those are the first three commandments, remember. They had to be set aside. Now, when you get married, you declare that you are set aside. 
You're set aside for the groom. You're set aside for the bride. That's what your vow is about. Have you noticed that in today, among modern young people, they don't make real vows anymore? Not real vows. They say nice things, but they don't make real vows. You know why they don't make real vows? Because they aren't willing to be totally sanctified unto one another. Totally set apart. A lot of people do that with Jesus. They want it, They want the benefits of being saved, but they don't want the burdens of living for Christ. They're not willing to count the cost. They're not really set aside. They're not really sanctified unto the Lord. They're just playing the game. They like the benefits without the burden. They like the sense of relationship without the responsibilities. It's characterized by the way we have our marriages are deteriorating all over the Western world, and especially in America, and especially in the church. What we're doing with our marriages is proof positive that in our churches we are not ready against the third day for the coming of the Lord. Not ready. We're proving it with our behavior. We're not sanctified. We're not set apart unto the Lord or even to our own spouses. The second thing that God said in Exodus chapter 19 to the children of Israel, to be ready against the third day meant you had to be purified. In other words, he said you have to wash your clothes as a symbol of being clothed in a white gown before you're betrothed. In other words, if you're going to come before a holy God and you're going to get married to him, you better come with clean hands and a pure heart. So the psalmist said, who will ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in the holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. That's what it's all about. But that doesn't seem to grip most professing Christians today in America. We're going to do it our way. We want to be as pure as we want to be, but not as pure as God commands us to be. So we're not ready. And then there's the third thing, be exclusively committed. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then... Oh, we'll progress on to the third day dilemma. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Today we're talking about the unveiling, the apocalypse 
of Jesus Christ and the implication of the third day. It's something you may not have heard about before, but it's extremely important. I think you're beginning to see how extremely important it is. And so, uh, before we go further, I just want to indicate to you that uh, if you want to know more about all of this and meditate on it, get a copy of my book, Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages, $22 there on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. You can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Bonk 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Now, God wants you and me to be a peculiar treasure unto him. That's what he said. He said that about Israel, and he says it about us. He said that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, holy unto the Lord. And then ultimately, as a people, we were to be a, they were to be a holy nation, and we are to be a holy nation. Even Peter, the apostle, picked up on that and repeated the same theme in the New Testament. So, We see we're to be sanctified or set apart as a bride for the bridegroom. We're to be purified, walking in holiness. We can't be living in the ways of the world. If we're living in the ways of the world, we are in, we're we're living as adulterers. We're fornicating with the ways of the world. All through the whole Old Testament and into the New Testament, God relates our apostasy from his calling as harlotry or adultery. Both with Israel and the church. It's a big deal. All right. So let's look at this third day drama and the dilemma that we're facing. Because the the religious leaders, the scribes of the Pharisees, uh, they thought that they were doing the right thing, but they weren't. They thought that they were preparing the people for whatever God expected. Jesus said otherwise. He said, you say that your father is Abraham. If you were, if your father were Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. Your father is not Abraham. Your father, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus, gentle Jesus, loving and mild, wearing his little halo, said that to the religious leaders of his day. No, he wasn't wearing a little halo, and he wasn't gentle Jesus, sweet and mild. When he talked to those who are responsible for leading. God's people. So, what happened at Mount Sinai? Three things happened at Mount Sinai. Listen very carefully to what happened. How God presented himself. First of all, he said, the Lord will come in a thick cloud. A thick cloud. These are the signs of Hashem's coming to his people, that is, God's coming to his people. The Lord will come in a thick cloud. Number two, the Lord will come with thunder and lightning. And number three, the Lord will come with the voice of the trumpet. 
So just in case the people had not taken the initial commands for covenantal purity seriously, the signs that came upon Sinai riveted them indelibly to the mind and memory, such that as the voice of the trumpet grew exceedingly loud, all the people that were in the camp trembled. So the people were taught with divine drama to tremble at the word of the Lord, and so they did. As the Ten Commandments were declared, which had been written by the very finger of God in stone. No wonder we want to get rid of the Ten Commandments. They're just the Ten Suggestions. So now, remember, God made his presentation, his marriage covenant with Israel, first through appearing in a thick cloud, next with thunder and lightning, and next with the voice of the shofar. This sounded louder and louder till the whole mount shook. Now we leap forward about a thousand years to the prophet Hosea, who is pleading on behalf of God to his betrothed Israel, who have forsaken his marital covenant, and here are his words, foretelling a future confrontation with Messiah on the third day. Just as it was at Sinai, so it would become with the Savior. Here's what he says. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he is torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. In other words, if we repent, if we clean up our garments, if we present ourselves as holy and righteous and pure unto him, then Hosea says this, After two days he will revive us, and in the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Was that prophecy ever fulfilled? Was it? No. So therefore, you and I have to be prepared for the third day unveiling. So the question is, are we? And what is it? What is the third day unveiling? Well, it's the message of the coming of the Lord. As Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote in the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed his fateful lightning by his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. You ought to go back and read and ponder the words of the Battle Hymn of Republic. It should be called the Battle Hymn of the Kingdom of God. And then, if we were to look at the message of the unveiled Messiah, the distilled message of Jesus, the long-awaited Yeshua HaMashiach from the unveiling or revelation, the purpose was to show unto his servants the things which will shortly come to pass. We have a list of 14 things in my book, the the chapter called The Third Day, that are revealed in the book of Revelation. 
about Jesus. And behold, he comes. He came the first time as an inconspicuous babe, just as Isaiah prophets, for unto a child is born, unto us a son is given, and so on. And then, as foretold by Hebrew prophets, he must come again. Just as he came to Israel on Mount Sinai on the third day, even so he will manifest his son, Jesus, Yeshua, to return on the third day of prophetic history, for it is written, Come, and let us return unto the Lord. After two days he will revive us, and in the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Remember the day of the Lord? Remember, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Oh, how long ago was it that Jesus was crucified and rose again? Almost 2,000 years ago. That would be two days, wouldn't it? In other words, my friend, the third day is shortly to come. No wonder Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. The Apostle Paul wrote concerning what happened to Israel. He said, all those things happened to them for our example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he's standing or is ready take heed lest he fall. And then if we go to the book of Hebrews, we conclude with this. It's talking about Mount Zion the final expression of Mount Sinai. See that you, you and I, do not refuse him that speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him that spoke on earth at Sinai, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth at Sinai. But now he is promised, saying yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Wherefore we, you and I receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, that is the eternal kingdom of Messiah, for those who truly receive him and live according to his ways, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably through Messiah with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire, just as he was at Sinai. Would you like to know where I just read from? Well, it's from my book, Renewing, excuse me, my book, uh, Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages, but quoted from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 25 to 29. So the question before us is, are we nearing history's final hour? Have we entered the third day? Or is it lurking unsuspectingly around the corner? Will that third day remain a mystery for you? Or will we have an unveiling in our own minds and hearts, a revelation of the reality that God was trying to show to both first Israel and then to the Gentile world who would be grafted into the gospel or through the gospel to be ready? 
Since the time of creation, approximately 6,000 years have passed, affording humankind a week of work in preparation for a millennium or Sabbath rest, even as God has recorded in six days and the seventh day, blessed and sanctified and ceased from his work. All the signs of our times, friends, and the rapid progression of prophetic fulfillment seem powerfully to indicate that our world right now faces its ultimate messianic moment. It's a destiny-determining time to choose. And the choice is relatively simple, it seems. Either God's revealed Messiah or a counterfeit. That will be known as the Antichrist. So on which one will you place your eternal trust on the third day? Before the first coming of Messiah as a suffering servant to save us from our sin, the prophet Isaiah foretold a forerunner would prepare the way of the Lord. It was as if it were a voice that cried in the wilderness, implying that a few would truly heed and respond by faith. And that voice cried once for about six months to prepare for the coming Messiah, the Lamb of God. But God, Hashem, is again raising up such a voice in a veritable wilderness of iniquitous unbelief right now to prepare the way for the mystery of God to be fulfilled in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And again, God, in his mercy and long-suffering, his loving kindness and divine patience is sending forth the voice of Elijah the prophet, just as he did with John the Baptist. Today, if you will hear his voice, pardon not your heart. Behold, he comes quickly. The third day lies straight ahead, as does the revelation, the apocalypse. Thanks for joining us here on Viewpoint, friends. Get a copy of the book, Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages. Hope this has been helpful, challenging perhaps. Get a copy of the book, $22 on our website, saveus.org. Call us, 1-800-SAVE-USA. And seriously, consider becoming a partner, friends. Really? Do you believe that this message is for this hour, this day? You can be a participant in getting it out. How about going before the Lord? Do you think he might say something to you? With Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.